Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to be talking about the Russian bombing campaign in Syria. Putin started bombing ISIS but his ambitions seem to go way beyond rearranging the cards in the Levant. This is his chance to get Russia back on the front foot on its foreign policy, to restore its profile on the world stage, to divide the West and make them take uncomfortable compromises, and possibly even to trade on the sanctions regimes on Ukraine. Even more importantly than that, it allows him to strike an ideological and a practical blow against the idea of coloured revolutions and toppling regimes in different countries. For this discussion, I'm joined by three experts who will steer us through what's happening in Syria, what Russia's motivations are, and how this impacts on the global politics and particularly the positions of the West. The big question we're going to be asking is, is ISIS Putin's saviour? So our first uh, Panelist is Nikolai Kozanov, who's a scholar at the Carnegie Moscow Center, but has also been working on a project with Chatham House looking at how the Ukrainian crisis has impacted on Russia's foreign policy in the Middle East. Second up is Jeremy Shapiro, who is a fellow at the Center for the United States and Europe at Brookings, but before that was a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff, where he advised the Secretary of State on U.S. policy in in North Africa and the Levant, spending a lot of time on Syria in particular. And finally, from ECFR, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey from our Middle East and North Africa program, who has been driving a lot of the work that we've done on Syria, has actually been based there in the past as a journalist. So, Nikolai, do you want to kick us off and tell us what you think the drivers of Russian policy are? So, uh, the main problem about the understanding of the Russian drivers uh, in the, in Syria, as well as in the Middle East, is actually that uh, these drivers, they were, they have been evolving during the last four years of the conflict. Uh, so if initially we can say that uh, the Russians, they were largely driven by, um, first of all, their intention to revenge for what they see as the, 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 the loss of their interest in, in Libya as a result of the fault of, uh, fall of um, Muammar Gaddafi and uh, to avenge for the divest for the previous losses in uh, Iraq and um, for the absence of the recognition of their efforts towards Iran when Medvedev banned the export of uh, S-300 complexes to, to this country. Uh, then by uh, definitely the, 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 the economic interests as well as the um, aspects related to the Putin's Suspicions, suspicious about Russian suspicions about the colorful revolutions. They played their role, but by 2015, this paradigm it has drastically changed. So, Syria, as an, uh, from the economic point of view, became almost unappealing for the Russians. And uh, by 2015, they faced another challenge that um, compelled them to look deeper in what's happening in this country, namely the rise of um, uh, jihadism, because currently. There are up to 3,000 Russian-speaking foreign fighters uh, who are struggling against the regime um, on the ground in Syria. And although we can argue whether these people are actually represent a threat for um, the Russian security interests, uh, Moscow genuinely believes that uh, they do. 
And from this point of view, they, it's, uh, the Russians are interested in um, stabilizing the situation in Syria, though on their uh, own conditions, uh, in order, first of all, to deal with the um, challenge that's represented by the Islamic State. At the same time, there are uh, a number of uh, secondary uh, priorities that uh, also uh, shape the Russian approach towards Syria. Um, it's definitely the Ukrainian crisis and the necessity uh, to show that um, Russia is still important as a player um, in the region and that probably doesn't make sense for the West to continue pushing uh, Russia towards the Ukraine. Uh, as well as uh, we can also take into account uh, the fact that um, the Russians, they are trying to increase their military presence outside of, of the borders and definitely a military base in Tartus and potentially a military base in Latakia is uh, those uh, things that can also affect the Moscow behaviors in the long-term perspective. Wow, so it's a huge, it's both a, a moving target but also a lot of issues. If you had to kind of uh, look behind all of those uh, tactical concerns. Do you think that one of the, the more strategic elements of Putin's approach is opposing coloured revolutions everywhere? I mean, how much of that is part of the, the picture? Well, uh, at least not now, because what's happening in Syria right now, and my colleagues, they will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's uh, a really complicated conflict where the um, element, the segment of the color revolution is um, just one of the aspects. So there are much more as he, um, dangerous challenges for Moscow, including the, the, the spread of the um, radical Islam that the Russians need to deal with. Okay. So, Jeremy, maybe we can shift to you. So we, we heard some of the drivers of, of Putin's uh, gambit. Um, can you say why it seems to have been so successful at, at shaking things up in Western capitals? Well, it's a, it's a bold move. It's changing the facts on the ground. It's getting a lot of headlines, and that always shakes things up uh, in Western capitals. But I would have to say that the view, at least in, in Washington, is, is broadly that, um, that this is not a good idea on the part of Vladimir Putin. It, it certainly is not, um, it's not something that the United States welcomes. They don't think it's going to make their life easier, nor do they think it's going to make the Syrian civil war any, any better. Uh, but there is a sort of general view that the goals that were just outlined are not something that the Russians can really achieve effectively. Uh, in Syria, and that they have um, probably bitten off more than they can chew. Uh, that's the sort of geopolitical analysis here, but the, the, there's a domestic political aspect to it, too, which is that uh, because it's getting the type of press that, uh, that we just talked about, and because it's being seen as a very bold move, as a, as a demonstrating strength, which presents a lot of contrast to the image that... Um, people have been spreading about President Obama, that he is weak. It, 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 it's yet another part of that narrative, and it puts a lot of pressure on the Obama administration to, in the first instance, to react, in the second instance, to show strength and to assert that the United States isn't having a march stolen on it by Russia and by Vladimir Putin. So what sorts of things do you think Obama's going to do to, to show that he's not weak as a result of this? Uh Honestly, I don't. I don't know. I think they're they're at they're the administration currently is in the is in the 
throes of a dilemma, which is that all of the things that would show boldness are, in their view, stupid. Uh, and so they're trying to they're trying to sort of navigate that space between bold and idiotic. Uh, and it turns out in it's Syria, a, that's a, a fairly space. narrow space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there are lots of things that they could do, but none of them in the long term. And they would in some many of them would improve the short term headlines. Um, so they could they could uh, uh, they could uh, advocate a sort of dramatic increase in training. They could establish no-fly zones, they could establish safe zones, uh, they could uh, even put, uh, they could ramp up uh, U.S. bombing or even talk about putting U.S. special forces or U.S. ground forces of some type on the ground. Uh, various of those things are under some degree of consideration, but I don't think uh, any of them are under serious consideration. And the reason is that none of them, while some of them might improve the headlines, none of them are really seen as improving the situation in Syria in the long term. And to the contrary, getting the United States into a place where their situation will be worse in the not too distant future. Julian, um, do you want to talk a bit about the European side? Because one of the reasons why this is having such a, a big impact on uh, Europeans, obviously the refugee crisis and presumably a lot of European capitals are terrified that even more Syrians could end up on the on the march as a result of these manoeuvres. Well, I I think obviously everyone is um uh, I wouldn't say petrified, but concerned that this is just going to add a new layer of conflict to to an already extremely messy situation, um, exacerbating the the kind of outward flows. And I think it's important to say that. Although Putin is framing this as, as anti-ISIS strikes, by and large, these have been against non-ISIS rebels. Now, they may be Islamists and they may be um, uh, uh, Salafist and, uh, and almost jihadist in, in, in some respects. And certainly, I think Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda branch, was targeted. But it hasn't been ISIS, and that's clear. And so there is a sense that this actually could feed the narrative which is fueling the exodus of people out of Syria, which is that everyone is basically doing nothing for the Syrian population, that the Russians are, are, are now upping the ante behind Assad in a way which is only going to fuel more devastation. But, you know, I wonder if quietly there's some hopes, and, and, and I don't know if this is applicable to, to, to the U.S. as well, but who knows, may, maybe uh, uh, Russian intervention could be what's needed here. You know, maybe for so long everyone's been crying out for a, a, a strong hand to kind of come in and try and assert themselves and, and force some kind of settlement. Now, I think that's unlikely to happen. I think that the, the, com the complications arising for this are, are clear, but there may be some hopes, and I think, you know, Germans expressed willingness to work with the Russians in, in Syria, that maybe the, the, the Russians can pivot off these initial strikes to try and force some kind of settlement, albeit one that is clearly now guaranteed to include Assad. So, Nikolai, how much of that do you think is part of the thinking in Moscow? Uh, well, um, definitely Moscow is um, well persuaded that it's doing right. So, for Moscow perspective, the uh, current military operation, um, it's supposed to bring quite a number of advantages. Uh, so, the Russians definitely believe that by bringing forces um, in Syria, they definitely ensure the survival of the regime. Because, well, even the Russian analysts, they acknowledge that it would be naive to think that uh, the um, Russians are not going to use their uh, air force against 
uh, other um, oppositional groupings. Um, that's on the one hand. On the, on the other hand, uh, the Russians are also, uh, by bringing forces, they are also guarantee that uh, the chances for the international uh, intervention in Syria are not that high. Because previously, they were concerned that the U.S.-led coalition it could um, use its capacities to uh, begin uh, airstrikes against the Syrian army and thus to, to, to destabilize uh, the Assad's position even further. Now the Moscow believe, um, uh, the Kremlin believes that it's hardly possible with them presenting on the ground. And finally, the Russians are also improved their diplomatic positions uh, from their point of view, because, uh, and partly they are right, because during the last 24 hours we only saw that the intensity of diplomatic con contacts between them and the international community increased. And Lavrov was very satisfied by the results of the recent negotiations with the um, uh, U.S. State Secretary John Kerry. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I personally have just three questions about um, the situation. First of all, um, whether the Russians, by um, launching this operation, increased uh, the trust in, the, in themselves as a possible mediators in the conflict. Obviously not, because even before the conflict, before the, the military operation, uh, the uh, amount of mistrust existed between the Russians and the West, the Russians and the region was huge. And now the Russians are completely seen as a quite an unpredictable player. Um, secondly, uh, whether the Russians could, be, could play a role of the mediator between the regime and the opposition. Obviously not, because currently the opposition is completely convinced that Moscow is fighting for us and is a part of the conflict rather than uh, a third uh, side. And finally, uh, this question was, has been already touched, uh, whether the Russians have enough uh, economic capacity to sustain the long-lasting military operation. Because uh, with a high probability, the anti-Islamic State struggle is going to take more than a year or, or more than uh, a day or a month. But the Russian economy is um, severely undermined by the current crisis and by the sanctions, as well as by the cost of the uh, Crimea annexation. So it's difficult to make any conclusions about their positive role. Well, can they afford this? But you, you think it is a long-term uh, move that they've embarked upon rather than a short-term uh, uh, move that they're going to try and cash in on in the short, either through trying to get sanctions relief or, or doing some kind of uh, political deal? Well, uh, um, I'm afraid that the Russians uh, invested in Syria too much efforts and um, resources to use it just as a uh, trading item. So probably it could be used as a certain leverage, leverage to affect the behavior of the West, saying that, look, guys, we could be more or less cooperable on the military operation against the Islamic State, but um, forget about the Crimea or let be more healthy, gentle with us on, in Ukraine. But it doesn't mean that uh, they will trade, for instance, the Assad support completely for uh, Ukraine. But of, but of course, the di dilemma there is that the, the, the rebels that are being hit now are quite a broad spectrum. As I said before, you know, there are no ISIS targets that have been hit. So the West is, is, is facing a reality where if they're going to partner up with the Russians, as Putin is trying to get them to do, it's basically in a manner that is going to necessitate joining alongside Assad and targeting all rebels as a kind of under the ISIS umbrella. And the West just won't buy that. 
and B, can't buy it because of its own allies in the region and how they're going to react. I mean, today we've seen the Russians targeting uh, an alliance in the north of Syria that is directly backed by the Turks and the Qataris and potentially the Saudis as well. Um, you know, that, so that, it, this has got regional implications um, that puts the West in a very tricky position. And, and it's not creating a kind of environment where actually there is a capacity to bridge a middle ground any longer. I think that the Russians have come in very firmly behind Assad and it's going to be very hard for them to row that back to a place where you can actually start deal-making. Yes, completely agree, because the main challenge for, for, Assad, uh, for Assad today is not an Islamic state. It's actually Jukat Anusra and Jej Fadih. So we can expect that they're going to be the top priority for the Russians as well. And the Russians are quite loose in determining the uh, terroristic organization in Syria. According to their uh, definition, it's almost all fighting forces on the ground. I... I I'd have to agree with all of that. I think that from a from a U.S. perspective, uh, the Russian move has actually made it harder to make the types of at least tacit compromises that that were being and still are being considered here about about uh, about working with the Saad against uh, the Islamic State. The Russian effort here, I think, as Nikolai described it, is essentially to uh, to negotiate with the West from a position of strength. That's also, of course, the Western strategy. And in fact, what's happened in both cases is that we've seen counter escalations, which have only made the Syrian civil war uh, worse. And I would predict less from the United States than from the regional allies like Saudi Arabia and Turkey that that we will see counter escalations uh, in terms of assistance to uh, to Syrian rebels. And it will make the war worse. It will make the Russian uh experience in Syria um, less fun. You know, from a, from a U.S. perspective, we have a lot of experience recently in losing Middle Eastern civil wars. Uh, and the way, that we, the way that you do it is you get yourself involved in a, in a proxy fight with, uh, with a rebel group that can be supplied by your enemy, and they can essentially bleed you uh, forever. Uh, and that, that is really where they risk being in, in, the, in the fairly near future. How, Jeremy, how realistic is it, though, that there will be much counter-escalation? I mean, your former colleague, both at the Brookings Institution and, uh, and in the, the administration, Phil Gordon, wrote a very interesting piece in Politico recently where he claimed that a mere nine... They're, they're only, as a result of all of the, the investments in opposition forces in Syria, I think there are only nine... Um, fighters who are fighting against ISIS who, who came out of all of these training camps. So, I mean, I think it's a mistake it to, 18, to uh, it's, it's not necessarily going to be that threatening to, um, to, yeah, anybody. well, I don't think that the main escalate, the main, the main counter escalation will come from the United States. The main counter escalation will come from, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, United Arab Emirates and the, uh, those regional powers. If you look at what the at the trends on the ground before the Russian intervention, and it was one of the reasons that was cited uh, by Nikolai for the for the Russian intervention, it's because Assad was suffering uh, was suffering in the war that the trends were running against him. He has a serious manpower problem, and I would attribute a lot of that a lot of the uh, turning of the tide against uh, Assad coming from Jabhat al Nusra and from other. Uh, opposition groups besides ISIS to uh, an increased and more effective uh, coordination of assistance from uh, regional supporters of those groups over the past several months. 
and I think that that will continue uh, and increase because the Russians have only increased the incentive to do so. Is that what you're picking up, Julian? I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, it's clear that Assad was on the back foot because of external support for the for the opposition, which had increased of late. Um, and I think, um, particularly given reports coming out today that, that, that new Iranian troops are actually landing and Hezbollah is prepared to go in to actually push a ground offensive in combination with the Russians, from the Saudi perspective, from, from the Turkish perspective, you know, who, who view this in such uh, existential terms in terms of the Iranian threat, this is going to clearly be something that, that provokes a, a, a firm response. And, and as we know, they've been very um, willing to act unilaterally of late. They haven't uh, conferred with the U.S. or the Europeans in a sense to try and coordinate this. This is something being driven by, by regional powers. And I think they would rather see Russia drawn into a costly quagmire than allow Russia to assert itself in a manner that, that gives Assad any semblance of a victory. So that's all very uh, inspiring. Is there anything, <laughs> are there any reasons for, for optimism on this? I mean, we both kind of talked about some of the happy talk that was going on, that maybe if, if Russia does invest more in this, there might be a, an external force that could really push the, the Syrian government to come up with some sort of deal. I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last few months about, finding ways of at least informally um, de-escalating the situation by um, having a, a more kind of uh, managed partition of, of, of Syria into different areas and that that could maybe be um, coupled with attempts to stop the barrel bombing and to create some sort of safe areas. Do you, is there any reason to think that this could help from that perspective? I mean, I think there's one thing, which is, I mean... Right after this, the strikes were launched, um, Putin did come out saying, you know, we want talks, the, the regime has to compromise. That was yesterday, kind of an hour after the first strikes. And I think, you know, in one sense, if the Russians move quickly, this could have been about clarifying the dilemma, as I was saying, about whether Assad is involved in talks or not in the transition, which has been circling in Western capitals at the moment. I mean, clearly Assad now, his, his position is guaranteed by the Russian intervention. And if the Russians were to quickly pivot off that to say, OK, now Assad's not going anywhere, we're behind him, now let's put pressure on the regime um, to, 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 to enter into a serious political process, I think particularly from a Western perspective, there would be a keenness to pick that up. But the fact that, that the Russians are today extending these strikes to a broader swathe of, of opposition groups, the fact that you have talk of Iranian and, and, and Hezbollah mobilization in tandem with the Re Russian mobilization, you know, it doesn't point towards a, 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 the quick pivot towards a political opening on the back of this show of force that, that might have led somewhere. So I think, you know, it's, it's escalation towards really consolidating Assad's position which is only going to fuel the cycle of further escalation, as Jeremy was talking about. And Nikolai, what? Sorry, were you were you going to say something else? Uh, well, um, oh, was that Jeremy? Sorry. Uh, no, yeah, sorry. I guess I, I okay. did want to say something. I can wait. Um, no, no. Why don't, you, why don't you come in? And, I wanted and to sort of reinforce reinforce Julian's point. Um, I hate to be in such violent agreement with him, but I I do think that. Um, that the idea that anything gets de-escalated by the deployment of the Russian Air Force, I think, is right off the, the table. Um, the, the, it is true that the Russians have, uh, have an eye toward negotiation from strength on this. But their method of going about it 
particularly from an American perspective, is uh, to basically um, piss on the president. Uh, you know, they could have, for example, made these first strikes against ISIS. Uh, and that would have sent a signal to Washington that they're actually interested in, in a, a, truly interested in a, in a joint campaign against ISIS. But they did precisely the opposite of that. Uh, they, could have, uh, they could have done it in the context of a, a U.S.-Russian uh, negotiation, but they didn't wait for that. Uh, so it does seem to me that they're what they're trying to do is box the United States into a corner and that, that, and that is not a place that the United States is going to be willing to go on this. I think the other issue is that uh, the U.S. and Russia would be important, uh, a U.S. and Russian agreement would be important for de-escalating, but it's not enough. Uh, I think that the regional powers are actually to some degree more important on this. Uh, and as long as the Iranians and the Saudis particularly are convinced that they want to continue this thing and aren't interested in de-escalating, then you won't see a de-escalation even if the Russians and the Americans could get together. So, Nikolai, maybe come back to you for a last word. I mean, how do you see this playing out in two ways? Firstly, at the level of public opinion, obviously the Russian public is no um, uh, stranger to military adventures on the fringes of the Middle East. Afghanistan is still very present in their popular consciousness. Um, but also, um, geopolitically, you said that he's not going for a quick deal. I mean, what, is this just a tactical masterstroke or is there a kind of longer term strategy which will go beyond the next few days uh, for Putin? Uh, well, I mean, uh, that's obviously too slightly different questions. So, speaking about the Russian public opinion, uh, that's definitely another challenge that Putin is going to face. Um, because uh, just three days before the beginning of uh, the uh, military operation, before the beginning of the airstrikes, one of the uh, Russian NGOs made a uh, public opinion poll uh, about whether the Russians are supporting the military operation in Syria or not. And uh, only 10% gave negative answers. But the positive answer was given by 40%. So that means that there, there are at least 50% of the population that is still to determine their attitude. And that's the, where the experience of uh, the war in Afghanistan in 1980s can jump in. Because, uh, well, this experience it led a serious psychological scar on the Russian population uh, that is from that time very cautious towards any uh, large-scale use of force outside of the Russian borders. So the Ukrainian example is a different example. Ukraine, in public opinion, is considered, whether we like it or not, a part of Russia or the Russian world. But Syria is definitely is another story. So uh, it will all depend on how effective the Russian propaganda machine is. And... Well, we can also just wait and see how the or how it will work out in the future. Speaking well, about Nic Nikolai, um, how, what is the Russian reaction if a Russian plane goes down and we end up with one of those videos with a Russian pilot? Well, uh, I think that uh, one death uh, will not make uh, the change. So here we are saying about you know, say the figures that are surpassing uh, dozens. So from from this point of view, probably the the first reaction will be anger and the wish to revenge. 
And what what about the longer term um, strategy? I mean, where do, where does this um, um, lead to? Well, the, the, the longer term strategy again, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, Moscow has a perfect planning, <laughs> but it um, based its strategy on two track approach. So on one hand, they are increasing their military capacities. Um, in Syria, so as it was mentioned, to, to corner partly the United States. But on the other hand, they will try uh, to uh, intensify their efforts on the diplomatic track. Uh, so they, 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 they do believe that uh, the uh, military means they cannot bring the only solution. So it's necessary to, to, to reach the dialogue with the sponsors of the opposition and with the opposition itself. But at the same time, um, as it was already been mentioned the, the, the fact that the Russians uh, started uh, bombing in Syria, so it actually creates much more problems for fighting in the common language rather than uh, actually lead pays the way for the settlement. Okay, so Julian, last word to you maybe on the regional aspects. I mean, how do you think the other players are going to respond diplomatically to this. Do you think this is going to be something which uh, they respond to simply by changing the facts on the ground and investing more, or do you think there'll be a lot of political activity on the international stage as well? I, I think what happens on the ground will be the key factor, and I think that the Saudis and the Turks have already expressed their opposition to this move. So I think you know the question is what will they do, and 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 how willing will they be to to, to match the Russians? Obviously, the Saudis are involved in the campaign in Yemen. Uh, the the Turks are occupied by the Kurdish threat and other issues. So I mean, it's it, it's complicated, and the Russians and the Iranians and Hezbollah are clearly going to move with speed. So it remains to be seen whether they can establish sufficient facts on the ground that actually make it very hard for the likes of the Saudis and the Turks and the Qataris to respond forcefully. But I think clearly it, it, it's going to be on the battlefield rather than the, the, within diplomatic corridors that this gets sorted. And of course, you know, let's not forget the, 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 the 100,000 Syrian rebels who now see Russian intervention through the lens of, 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 of pro-asset support, but also with kind of uh, a, a, a viewpoint of, of kind of the Afghanistan jihad and all of that now. So it's clear that, you know, the, the Russians are going to be facing strong opposition on the ground. The, the, the air base that they have in Latakia has supposedly already been a, uh, attemptedly attacked by, 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 Russian, by Syrian rebels. So, I mean, it's the local dynamics that are as, as fierce as anything. And the, the, the regional backers are clearly going to feed into that now. I don't know how far they're going to go. Will they provide anti-aircraft missiles, which the rebels haven't had to date, to try and bring down some Russian planes? I mean, that could be something significant. I don't know whether the regional players will go there, whether the Americans will actually give the green light to something that, that they have said no to for so long. OK, well, I suppose we'll all be watching this space um, as the conflict uh, continues to escalate and as the... Russian moves carry on both on the on the political battlefield and on the diplomatic one as well as uh, in the airs over in the air over Syria. Thank you to all of you for a really good discussion. We've got one last segment left on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment in which we ask um, all our guests what they're reading at the moment. 
So, uh, Julian, do you want to go first? What's on your bookshelf? So at the moment I'm reading a Algerian book, actually. It's been translated into English. It's called The Merceau Investigation by an Algerian journalist, Kamal Daoud. And it's, it's a very interesting take on Albert Camus' Outsider. It's actually the story of the brother of the Arab who was shot in, in Camus' Outsider. So in a sense, it tells us the story from the reverse perspective, the perspective of the colonialised land, uh, the Algerian without a name who was shot. Um, and and I'm, I'm just beginning it now, but, it, but it, it, it's got some very interesting reviews. And I think it's a, um, a, a, a nice takeaway from, from, from some of the issues dominating the region at the moment. Jeremy? Yeah, I just finished um, The Fall of the Ottomans, which is about... Uh, the Great War in the Middle East, and it's a it's a rather harrowing uh, description of the sort of death throes of the Ottoman Empire in the course of the First World War. You know, it's it speaks a little bit to the situation in Syria today, because of course that's what created the borders. But I think actually the sense, the broader sense you, that you get is that it was more about um, uh, about Turkey than about uh, the Middle East. Okay, what about you, Nikolai? What are you reading at the moment? Well, uh, I'm currently busy with preparing a course for my students on the Islamic economy. Uh, so <laughs> um, I'm currently reading quite a number of books developed, devoted to this theory. Uh, but uh, for myself, I'm reading a sci-fi novel um, written by uh, Arkadian Boris Strugatsky. It's called Picnic on the Side of the Road. So it's just the story about the human capacity to perceive the knowledge and to explore the world around themselves and how they, they are ready to sacrifice their private, uh, their personal um, interests for the greater good. Great. I've been reading some articles which are very relevant to our discussion. So I'll, I'll mention two which I highly recommend. One is by uh, Jeremy's former colleague, Phil Gordon, in Politico. It's called It's Time to Rethink Syria. And he talks about the tragic trajectory of the conflict in Syria and the um, cul-de-sac, which he feels that American policy towards Syria has entered and, and calls for a kind of major root and branch rethink of this, um, including... Uh, uh, the hope that there might be some way of, of working with the Russians um, towards a different outcome. Um, and another uh, interesting article was written by my colleague at ECFR, Gustav Grasso, called Russia does not have the means or desire to defeat ISIS in Syria, and Vladimir Putin knows it. So there are links to all the books and articles that we've read on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. From Jeremy Shapiro... Julian Barnes-Dacey, Nikolai Kazanov and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher for our podcasts is Ulrike Franke and the editor is Katarina Botel-Atinano. <laughs>